We come before you, Father, this morning with our tithes and our offerings, thanking you for how you care for us and giving back to you out of that gratitude. Would you continue to make us cheerful in our giving, make our hearts glad to be engaged in a part of what you are doing and take and use these according to your will for all your good purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to John, John's Gospel, in chapter 1. We are taking a break from Jeremiah to uh, celebrate Advent. So for the next few weeks, we'll be in John's Gospel, and we're going to be uh, looking at the first 18 verses of the, the Gospel of John in, in smaller portions. I'm going to read all verses, all, the, all 18 verses. It's not very long. Uh, but we'll look at just verses 1 to 3 this morning. But we'll read the full 18 verses each week so that we get the feel for the whole prologue that John wrote. This is God's Word, John 1, verses 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, would you... By your Spirit, open our eyes and help us to see the wonderful things that you intend. Lord, give both me as the speaker, but also give us ears with just great clarity to both speak and to hear exactly what it is that we need to understand. Would you give us attentiveness to your Spirit's work? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Whenever we meet people for the first time, we have questions that we typically ask. My go-to questions, whether I intend to use them or not, just habitually come out. Where are you from? What do you do? What brought you here? How about your family? Those are kind of the four. I don't have them memorized or any, but that's just kind of what comes out. It's what I end up asking people. And I, I always think I need to be more creative in my questions But those really aren't bad questions. I mean, they do help us get to know people. And one of the things that has struck me uh, since living here is when you ask people where they're from, most everybody in Indian River County is from somewhere else. So much so 
Sue's disagreeing with me, but let's take a poll. No, I'm kidding. Um, so much so that when you meet someone who is from Indian River County, it's striking. It stands out. You know, I, I kind of like I tune in a little differently when I meet someone who was born and raised here. Another thing that stands out is, is, is what brings people here besides retirement or a job. Uh, to, the answer I think I've heard the most is family. A lot of people seem to be moving to be closer to family, and I think that's, that's interesting and good. When I ask people about what they do, the thing that strikes me are all the different kinds of jobs that exist that I never knew existed. Leslie and I talk about this all the time. We're like, we never knew all these jobs were even an option. You know, when we were, when we were young, we just had kind of a more basic understanding. Well, when Matthew and Luke wrote their Gospels, particularly of the arrival of Jesus or the advent of Jesus, they answered these kinds of questions. They wrote in a narrative form, and they provided this kind of information, kind of biographical information about Jesus's birth and, and, his, and his coming. John's approach is a little bit different. He, um, at least in these opening words, seems to dive deeper, seems to be dealing more with the philosophical questions. I, I, I providentially came across a post this week um, where the, 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 the question was posed, what are the differences between the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel? And it was both enlightening and entertaining. One of the, the responses was, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are kind of like driving a highway through a land, and John's gospel is like flying in a helicopter or an airplane, that you just get a, a higher view of what's going on. One I appreciated was John's gospel and how it's different uh, from the, the synoptics is, is that it's, it's like listening to the director's commentary on a DVD. If you've ever watched a movie and turned on that director's commentary where the director kind of talks over the movie as you watch it and explains kind of the ins and outs of how the movie was made, that's kind of John's gospel. I thought that was helpful. Another person posted the meme of Tiger Woods and John Daly. And if you don't immediately have an image in your mind, then this will fall flat. But for the two people who know what I'm talking about, they place the synoptics on Tiger Woods and John's Gospel on John Daly. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, text me and I'll send it to you because it is kind of funny. On a more serious note, another poster mentioned something that John Calvin said, that the synoptics show us the body of Christ and John's Gospel shows us his soul. Well, as you have already heard, we're going to look at John's Gospel this Advent season. We have been through... Mark doesn't have an Advent account, so we've been through Matthew and we've been through Luke before. We've done some different approaches with the the titles of Jesus. But this year we're going to look at John's account of the coming of Jesus as Messiah. And we're going to work our way through these first 18 verses, which are known as the prologue. Some suggest that this prologue actually comprised an early church hymn. And it's not hard to believe when we read it because there is a beauty and a, a, a poetic nature to it. And it's one of the reasons why I want to read all 18 verses each Sunday. I want us to appreciate the, the beauty of it. But the thing that always strikes me about the opening words of John is just how deep he dives right off the start. I mean, it's just straight into the deep end. And we're scratching our heads trying to figure out what each phrase means. And we may wonder why John wrote what he wrote or why he wrote in the way that he wrote it. And there are ways to understand the Gospels kind of thematically, and, and these are helpful. Like we, we talk about Matthew's Gospel shows us the kingship of Christ, and Mark's Gospel shows us his servanthood. 
Luke shows us his humanity and John shows us his divinity. Those themes are helpful. They're not exclusive. They're, they're just thematic in what the writers wrote. But for John's explanation of why he wrote what he wrote and the way he wrote it, it's better just to listen to his own words. And he gives us an explanation. At the end of his gospel in chapter 20, at the closing he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What John's saying is really kind of exciting. He's like, this is only the tip of the iceberg. Jesus did a lot of other stuff, but these things I've written, and I've put them together so that you might believe, that you might know who Jesus is, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That is, that you may be saved. So that's the guiding theme of John's gospel. Everything that we're going to look at, read, and understand from these opening words of John's John's gospel, the, the, the force behind it is that we might know Christ and that we might believe what is true about him. Now, for believers, this may sound very basic. You might think to yourself, I already know who Jesus is. I already believe on him for my salvation. Why do we need to do this? Yet, even in these first three verses that we'll look at today, we see a depth, a, a mystery. Uh, who, who in here can fully comprehend the Trinity? Um, who can fully explain the Trinity? Uh, right? There's great depth and mystery to this. I went to a seminary that not many people have heard of, and so I often get asked the question, what was it like? And the story that I found myself telling the most through the years is of a particular class with one professor, Dr. Jeff Lohman. It was systematic theology. We had six systematic theologies in the MDiv track, and they were, you know, so if you took two a year, one each semester, you had three years of systematic theology. It was a lot of systematic theology. Systematic theology could be dry at times, a little hard to get through. It wasn't always maybe as exciting as some of the other um, topics that we studied. But I remember one night he came to class and he opened the class by saying um, that he had just come from the hospital and a young girl in his church, 12 years old, had an appendicitis and that that, uh, she was having surgery and and he had just been with the family. Would we pray? And so we joined him in opening the class and we prayed for this young girl. The next week, we had class once a week. The next week he came to class in a dark suit having just preached her funeral. And I know this sounds over the top, but that changed my life. Because my professors were pastors, it changed the way they taught what they taught. It changed systematic theology. It showed me that this truth matters. These facts, this information, the fact that it is true matters. It matters in our lives. It matters how we live. It matters how we minister And so these truths in John 1, as basic as they may seem to our Christian faith, are life-changing for us. They're intended to be life-changing for us. John's motivation is our faith. And he is strengthening our faith and forming our faith by telling us who Jesus is, that we might know the truth and hold fast to the truth about him. You see, already in the early church when John wrote this, the Gospels dated, you know, late uh, 80s, 90s, uh, you know, depending on who you uh, read or listen to. 
But it was uh, already in the early church, and those outside the church were questioning who Jesus was. Where did he come from? Who was he? And what was he? The deity of Christ was what was on the line. This was what was being questioned already. And so getting this right is so essential. You get this from what John wrote here. He wants us to make sure that we get it right. It's critical to our faith. And there's so much truth for us just in these verses that it's worthwhile to slow down, to glean all that we can, that we might understand all the words the Spirit inspired John to write. In these words, we find the incredible hope that we celebrate each and every Advent season and that we no doubt celebrate this year. So looking with me now in verse 1 of John 1, the opening words. They say to us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So instead of like the synoptics that start with the humanity of Jesus, John goes straight to his glory. He portrays Jesus in his glory. You see, Jesus' origin didn't begin in Bethlehem. Advent does not mean origin. Advent means coming or arrival. Jesus was already. He was in the beginning. And by starting his prologue in this way, he takes our minds back to where? Genesis, right? Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So our minds immediately go back to Genesis 1. And we see that when creation came into existence, in the beginning, God was already there. He pre-existed creation. He precedes creation itself because he is the creator. How could the creator not precede creation? And he precedes creation because he is eternal. He has always existed. And so by taking us back to the beginning, John communicates the same thing about Jesus. He was there because he is eternal. John then ascribes the name to Jesus, the word, which is the Greek word logos and A lot has been made about the use of this word and why it wasn't a different word that John used and so forth, and we won't go down that rabbit hole. But we understand that when we speak words, they articulate what we think internally, what's inside of us. Words allow for us to get what is inside our hearts and minds out so that other people may hear, know, experience, and understand what we are thinking or pondering on the inside. And so by referring to Jesus as the Word, John is expressing that Jesus, the Son, reveals God to us. He is the revelation of God in the flesh. He is the speech of God showing us is in a way that at, up until this point in history, mankind had yet to experience. But John's gospel and his use of the word logos is not the first time we see this type of understanding, this personification of the word. We see this in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 33, 6 personifies the word by saying, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. In Proverbs, we see uh, the person named as the person of wisdom, but it's the same descriptive as we see in Psalm 33, 6, as we see in John 1. In Proverbs 8, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle in the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the foundations of the deep, when he assigned to the seas its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the word of God. 
in the flesh. He reveals to us in his coming who God is and that he was in the beginning, having always existed. God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. The second phrase, he says, is the word was with God. And this already makes it confusing, doesn't it? The word was in the beginning, and the word was with God. What is John doing here? Well, John is, has carefully chosen his words to communicate something about Jesus, and that is there is a distinction between the Father and the Son. He was with the Father. Jesus is portrayed as with God to show that there are two persons being described here. Now, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned, but John's aim is the Trinitarian nature of God. That's what he is describing. In other words, Jesus isn't just a form of God or a representation of God. You know, we use, uh, and, and you may have heard this, but, but when we, again, we're not going to go down this rabbit hole. You know, water is liquid, gas, uh, ice, solid, there we go. Uh, you know, different forms, that's, that's not helpful. That gets us off track. Eggs, you know, shell, white, yolk. I mean, maybe this is helpful when we're talking to four-year-olds, but it really can get us off track as adults because they, they don't. They, they don't take us where we need to go. Jesus is not just another form of God. And as much as this may make our heads hurt, it's worth trying to comprehend and yet reminding ourselves, hear me clearly on this, the Trinity is beyond our comprehension. It doesn't mean that we can't comprehend in part, that we can't describe clearly it just means that it's still beyond our comprehension. It's like the, the carrot on the stick hanging over your head. You're just never going to get it, this side of heaven. And that's okay, but it's good to remember that because there are times where as people we want to nail things. We want to have them nailed down and understand what they mean. So let me just try to say it simply with that caveat that it's still a great mystery. Uh, we would say that there is one God and yet within the Godhead are three persons. They are all fully God and share equally the same attributes and the same mind. Their differences are in relation, or we might say roles. For example, when we speak of salvation, we we talk about the fact the Father elects, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies our salvation. But the three members comprise the one Godhead. Christianity is clearly monotheistic. I want to be uh, absolutely clear about that. So Jesus was with the Father. Distinction, two persons here. We're, we're not going to get with the Holy Spirit yet, but, 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 but that's the distinction John is making by saying he was with God or with the Father. The phrase unity of essence has been used. I don't know if that's helpful or not. Um, I, I, I tried to find the origin of this. I got back as far as Egidius Hunius who was one of the reformed uh, Reformation writers in you know, 500 years. It may go back further than that. But, but that's what's being described here, a unity of essence that came to reveal to us who God is. The writer of Hebrews opens his uh, book with this. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Because Jesus was in the beginning with the Father, we can confess then that he is not created. 
We do confess this in the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. The Council of Nicaea, I think, was 325. So, you know, it didn't take long for the church to, to, to get far enough off track that they needed something to govern. And when we look at these words, again, carefully chosen words, we see what they're trying to communicate about who Jesus is. Now, begotten always threw me off because I grew up memorizing a lot of scripture with the King James Version, and it uses, you know, in the genealogy, so-and-so beget so-and-so. And so that phrase always threw me off, like he's begotten, but he's not made. How does that work? And so the idea is that it's, it, he's eternally begotten. That's why we say that. Uh, or he's eternal, eternally generated from the Father. In other words, there was never a, an, uh, an origin. There, uh, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are eternal. They share that. They've always been, they always will be, and they've always existed together. And so to make all of this emphatic, then John closes his sentence with the statement, and the word was God. If you didn't get it from the first phrase or the second phrase, by the third phrase, there's no room for argument. The word was God. No question left about his deity. Jesus isn't a type of divine being. He is fully God. He never started being God because he has always been so. Before time began and before the world was created, Jesus was God. And this is incredibly essential to our understanding, not only of his coming, but of his redemptive work on our behalf. Because no one but God could save us from our sins. The Son of God came in the flesh, born as a man, to shed his blood for our sins in order to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Kent Hughes writes, The exact meaning is that the word was God in essence and character. He was God in every way, though he was a separate person from God the Father. The phrase perfectly preserves Jesus' separate identity while also stating that he is God. This was his continuing identity from all eternity. He was God constantly. Then in verse 2, John takes what he's just said in verse 1, and he summarizes it, and he says it again. He was in the beginning with God. Now, John's combating things that are already cropping up, but I think in God's providence, God knew this would always be an issue. So he preserved it in his word for us that we would have this to go back to so that there wouldn't be questioning as far as who Jesus is. Some were arguing that Jesus was not God. Some were saying that he was not eternal. Some uh, suggested that he was only God-like. And John erases all of these notions with this closing emphatic phrase of the first sentence, he was God. He was in the beginning with God and, and, and he was God. By going back then and summarizing it in verse 2 and rephrasing it, he both claims his eternality, only God is eternal, he was not created, therefore he's divine, and then he claims that he was with God, again distinguishing the, the separateness of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John Calvin writes, in order to impress more deeply on our minds what had already been said, the evangelist condenses the two preceding clauses into a brief summary, that the speech or the word always was, and that he was with God, so that he might understand the beginning was before all time. So you understand there the distinction. Eternality, he, was, he always has been, 
with God, separate persons, we see the Trinity. And then in verse 3, he adds the element of his created power. That he, in the Son, the role of the Son was that he made all things. So having established that Jesus is God, that he exists with the Father before time, he then moves on to demonstrate his divinity through acts of creation or through his powerful work of creation. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one God, sharing all attributes equally, having the same mind. So we see all three in creation. But Jesus was uniquely the craftsman of creation. We've already read in Hebrews that it was through him that the world and everything in there was made. John says it here, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Uh, Hebrews 1-2, what we already read, he made, uh, through him he made the universe. Colossians 1-16, we read that in our order of worship this morning. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And then John again says it in his letter to the seven churches in Revelation. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the divine word, God, the Son, brought everything into existence through his almighty speech. In Genesis 1, we read that repeated phrase, And God said, Let there be, and then each thing came into existence So without him was not anything made that was made. It removes any doubt that there's anything in existence that Jesus did not make and that he did not with his same almighty word pronounce that it was good in the beginning. So once again, emphasize Jesus is not created because he is the creator. He was in the beginning, so he's eternal. He was with God, so there's a separation, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he is God And then expressly now, he's God because he made all things. Martin Luther wrote, God the Father initiated and executed the creation of all things through the Word, through Jesus. And now he continues to preserve his creation through the Word, and that forever and ever. He remains with his handiwork until he sees fit to terminate it. There's hope for us. Therefore, Christ says, my Father is working still and I am working. For just as we were created by him without our own aid and agency, so we cannot maintain ourselves with our own might. Hence, as heaven, earth, sun, moon, stars, human beings, and all living things were created in the beginning through the word, so they are wonderfully governed and preserved through that word. So whatever's happening this Advent season, whether it's a happy time or whether it's a sad time or somewhere in between, All that has been made is being wonderfully governed and preserved through the Word who made it. This Word, the Son of God, Jesus our Messiah, this is Him who we celebrate this Advent season. John wrote to us that we might know Him and believe on Him so that we might have life in His name. In describing the arriving Savior, he tells us that He is our God in the flesh. We can now see and hear The Son with the Father and the Spirit brought their plan of redemption from eternity past to earth so that you and I might be saved. As our Creator, He knew our greatest problem and He knew the only way to solve it. I rarely use cheesy illustrations, but I read this one twice this week. I read some old stuff and I read some new stuff and I thought it's worth repeating. Henry Ford created the assembly line, automobile manufacturing, 
changed the world. It, uh, it, it was a remarkable thing. There's a story that the assembly line broke down and no one was able to fix it. And so he called his friend Charles Steinmetz. And Steinmetz was a genius. It was said of him that he could, in his mind, build a motor. And if it broke in his mind, he could fix it. He was a remarkable person. And so after no one was able to fix it, Steinmetz shows up. And, it, and, and the story is told that within just a few minutes of tinkering, he flipped the switch. Everything came back on. It worked perfectly. So lots of happiness at the Ford Motor Company, I'm sure, until a few days later, Henry Ford got the bill. The bill, and this was a long time ago, it would be a hefty bill even in our own day, was for $10,000. And so he sent Steinmetz a note and said, Charlie, don't you think your bill is a little high for just a little tinkering? So Steinmetz wrote a revised bill and sent it back to him. And the bill said, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. And that's exactly what Christ has done. He knew exactly where to tinker. He knew exactly what our greatest problem was, and he knew how to fix it. And he became the solution himself. He gave up his rightful position in heaven. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his infinite wisdom, he remained just and became our justifier through his death. Jesus, the Word made flesh, came to this earth and was born to die for you and for me to solve the problem that we couldn't solve ourselves. I mentioned earlier the the story of my seminary professor who had just preached the funeral of this young girl, how that changed, uh, changed systematic theology, changed my whole seminary experience. Yesterday, Leslie and I sat with Peter and Kathy Dresser as the doctor came in to Kathy, Peter was uh, still in ICU, and announced that he had a, a malignant brain tumor. Um, I sat down last night to go over my sermon, and I couldn't help but think of my seminary experience with this professor and how the truth of who Jesus is as our Savior, as our God, as our Creator who made all things who holds all things together, it matters. It matters in times of awful diagnoses, the fact that he came to die for what we could not solve for ourselves, to offer true hope and healing, permanent hope and healing for us. Advent makes all the difference in the world. These aren't just some thoughts or ideas of theology that are to be left to heavy books or classes in a seminary. Each Advent season, this is what we celebrate. Our God who made us has come. He knew exactly where to tinker because he made the whole world and he made us. And he knew our problem. And he came to solve it himself. So as we now move in and launch out in our Advent season, let me, let me share just three things that I think are helpful for us to keep in mind. First, there's no biblical requirement for celebrating Advent in the way that we do. This is optional. There's nothing in Scripture that says stop four weeks before Christmas and preach four sermons and have a a candle and and all of this. This is is optional, but I think it's a good practice. In the same way that the Passover and all the, the, the annual feasts for the people of God in the Old Testament were helpful because they remind us. They remind us of what truth is. 
They instruct us, they teach us, and they make us continually grateful. And they do so for the next generation. These practices, these habits that, they go, that we go through now in Advent are helpful for the younger people, that they might see, that they might learn and know and become grateful for the Savior. Second, Advent is about anticipation. It's that uh, often spoke, spoken of the 400 years before the coming of Christ. They're often called the silent years, and I think that's a bit of a misnomer because God was clearly at work. But silent in terms of we don't have recorded scripture during that time, and it seemed that there was little activity. But there was this anticipation. Would this be the year that the light would dawn? There was that uh, desire to see the coming of the Messiah, not knowing exactly what it would be like. And, and we can relate to that because we too long for the return of Christ in the same way. Is this the year that he will come back? Third, uh, when he finally came, it changed everything. Whatever the Old Testament prophets imagined, whatever the scholars of Old Testament writings suggested, the coming of Jesus as the Messiah was beyond anyone's dreams. He came humbly, born to an average family, no royal privilege He came not bringing military or political might in the way that many thought the kingdom would come, but he came in humble service through the preaching of repentance and faith, by healing the sick, teaching us how to live, demonstrating incredible love, ultimately to lay down his life and die for our sins. So as we start off this Advent season, let these reminders guide us as we process the truth of Jesus' divinity, the truth of the Trinity, and the fact that he made all things. Because he is our God, he has the power to forgive, and he had the righteous holiness so that by becoming flesh, he alone could atone for our sins as the Lamb of God. Because our God is triune, Jesus makes it possible for us to know the Father in ways those who lived before his arrival hadn't been able to. He reveals the Father to us because he has known the Father face to face for all eternity. And because he has made everything, he knows how to fix it all. And he came to do that very thing. To redeem us from the curse of the fall, to establish his kingdom on earth, and to set the course for our incredible future. God of God, light of light, very God, begotten, not made. O come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, would you, would you take what is true about you? revealed in your word that we've just heard. And would you transform us? Would you give us a hope that moves beyond our physical trials, that moves beyond our financial hardships, that moves beyond our physical suffering or our emotional suffering, that moves us beyond the disappointments in life and moves us beyond the, the, the political meanderings of our nation or other nations of the world, that moves us beyond all these temporal things and sets our eyes fixed on Christ alone, the hope of Advent, that the light has dawned, that we might know that you have solved what we couldn't solve for ourselves. You have atoned for our sins. The price has been paid. Death has been crushed. And we now have a sure future that awaits us in which all of the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So would you give us that hope today and throughout this Advent season, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.